Welcome to Dyslexics Wanted, a podcast celebrating the unique strengths and creativity, so often the hallmark of people with dyslexia. We invite you to learn more at the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia's website, wicd.org. And there you'll find out the latest information about a film we're producing called Decoders, a cutting-edge documentary that objectively and fearlessly explores fundamental questions about how we learn. To support the making of this film, find out more at WICD.org. And now, Dyslexics Wanted. Today's guest is Sally Taylor, musician, artist, teacher, activist, wife, and mother. Sally was born into an artistic family of the first order. She's the daughter of James Taylor and Carly Simon. Sally is dyslexic, but that hasn't prevented her in the least from being creative. In fact, in fact, as you'll hear, Sally credits having dyslexia with helping her find her voice. Sally Taylor is here, and it's a real pleasure, first of all, to meet you, one of the Taylors. I've met others from the family, which we'll talk about, yeah. but uh, thanks for stopping by oh, today. it's my pleasure. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're a very busy lady, a lot going on, and we'll focus on a couple of your projects, which are very worthwhile. But I really want to talk with you today, obviously, about uh, the role dyslexia plays, not only in your own life, but also in society and how things have morphed since you were a, a child. Let's talk about your family, first of all, the big elephant in the corner sure. of the room. Uh, your mom and dad, please. And James Taylor and Carly Simon. Okay. And before we get into you and your experience, uh, what is their experience with LD or dyslexia or anything like that? Um my mom comes from the, the stance that everybody has some sort of a learning disability, that there's nobody who has the exact same style of integrating information. And so everybody is disabled in some capacity. Um, the ones that get labeled as a learning disability are the ones that actually interfere or become apparent when you enter school. Um, my husband, who runs a nonprofit called Noticeability, which also sounds, if you say it, <laughs> sounds I like know. no disability, is a huge uh, proponent of the idea that there wouldn't be dyslexia, that wouldn't be a, a you know a learning an LD without the printing press. You know that um, you know before there was reading or before reading was the the method for. Um, integrating information in school, it was never a problem. In fact, dyslexic people were usually sort of the head of the tribe who could see the big picture mm -hmm. um, and would go out and sort of delegate responsibility to different members of the clan or of the tribe because they could see this sort of macro perspective mm. that nobody else could. And so um, it's only sort of, you know, in the recent history that um, dyslexia was even considered a problem. Mm -hmm. So both parents and in the family hierarchy and lineage, there is, a, how do I say this, clinical evidence that there is, quote, what we call uh, dyslexia. Yeah, my mom is definitely dyslexic. My dad has never been um, formally tested, I don't think. Um, but, you know, I... He he seems pretty much like the rest of us, so what can I say? So your childhood experiences, which you've written about and talked about, the TED Talk you gave on this subject, uh, touched on it, um, is like a lot of folks, particularly at your age now and where you were then. There was mystery as to what was going on in the school, or did you have a sense, thanks to your mom and dad, particularly your mom, that early on you knew something was was involved here? Yeah, I think uh, I think. 
by the time I was, you know, nine, it became clear that there was some difficulty um, getting through or decoding the information that I was getting at school, and my brother as well. So we kept on transferring to different schools, hoping that different methodologies would fit better with our particular learning styles, and nothing was really helping significantly. So we went to a specialist, uh, neuro, got, you know, did the neuropsych and came back with the diagnosis of dyslexia, which wasn't really a surprise to anybody. And, you know, my mom, as I said in the TED Talk, you know, just opened up the door when I had this diagnosis and looked at this paper that I had in front of me and just said, oh, great, you know, welcome to the family. This is fantastic <laughs> news. You'll fit right in. Right. Um, like, thank God you're dyslexic or else we wouldn't really truly understand you. Mm. Um, and the same is true uh, of our son. My husband and I are both dyslexic and we have a dyslexic son. And um, and that has been such an incredible blessing because to be able to identify with your parents um, around anything, whether it's something, you know, socially exciting or something that's, you know, deemed as detrimental is still an exciting thing to have identification. So that is, um, you know, the exciting bit about all of this. First of all, to even label it as exciting is interesting for a lot of people who may be hearing our discussion because the whole trend to be more positive about how we are built and how we can apply ourselves is really taking off. But I like that word exciting. It's not one that you yeah. hear often. Well, it is exciting. And um, my excitement comes from the knowledge that we are these incredible macro um, viewers of the planet mm-hmm. and of the earth and of the situations at hand, um, and that we have these incredible strengths these incredible strengths, um, which have been uh, written about in, you know, many, many publications. But one of the books that my husband, you know, absolutely thinks is the Bible around this sort of strength-based learning um, with disabilities is uh, a book called The Dyslexic Advantage. And in it, it discusses four strengths, four major strengths of the dyslexic mind, one of which is narrative storytelling, which is, um, you know, the arts, generally speaking. Mm. You know, it's mm-hmm. communicating through art. Um, another one is engineering. Another one is architecture. And the last one is entrepreneurship. So there's certainly a formula for success if you right. combine it. You don't even have to combine them. Even one on its own. Is exciting. Mm. <laughs> That's why I say right. exciting, yeah. This this is why we're thrilled to be chatting with people like Sally Taylor because uh, – and I'm not going to suggest that you or all of our folks are the role models because, you, as you said, this is a human experience that kids and adults of all ages, types, and backgrounds – are involved in experiencing, but in school was it was it at all stressful, pressure packed, uh, unnerving to have to have an extra moment or two to catch what was read or or printed on the board? I'm not sure how it evolved in your school life. For me, um, I had to yes, decoding was my you know mm-hmm. is the primary problem with dyslexics, um, and decoding especially through the written word. Um, but in general, uh, I caught on early that I wasn't actually understanding the assignments and I would come back and I would say, well, there's so many ways of thinking about this question that you've asked me and I don't know exactly how to respond. Um, 
my gut reaction was always to respond metaphorically. Mm. I never actually thought of the literal meaning. In fact, when I thought, you know, when somebody was asking me for a literal um, interpretation of something, I just thought, really? That's that. That's all you're looking for is this really sort of... On, on the website, if yeah. I may be so bold, uh, and I love your site, sallytaylor.com, you have a little piece here about a game that your mom called Essences that she played with you. And it's sort of a a game plan for living this life. Explain what essences meant to you and what it means, because yeah. it sort of relates to what you're saying. Absolutely. Uh, so when I, you know, when I came home with this diagnosis of dyslexia, my mom said, "Well, you know, we need to find a walk, a, a workaround um, around your mm. decoding process, right?" So what seemed a clear fit was uh, this game called Essences that would teach me how to take the the literal translation of something or the literal meaning of something and then to be able to understand it through metaphor right so the game was played when uh, an individual thought of somebody in their head and then challenged the rest of the players to guess the identity of that person based solely on asking questions metaphor questions about their essence mm-hmm so if, you know, my mom might think about something, somebody in her head and then say, um, you know, we'd say if this person were a flower, what would they be? And she'd say a daffodil. And we'd say if they were a beverage, what would they be? And she'd say um, sparkling soda, you know, with no no sugar. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, if she said, if we said, it, you know, what would this person be if they were a an animal and... She would say, a, you know, a butterfly, mm-hmm. right? And then we'd say, oh, is this Princess Diana? You mm-hmm. know, and so there was this sort of, you know, she would say, yes, it is. And then we, you know, my brother might say, well, you know, I wouldn't have said butterfly. I would have said um, peacock. And, you know, we would go, we would sort of investigate the different angles from which we were perceiving this person. Mm-hmm. Um, it really showed me how incredibly different and unique each of our perspectives is. Mm-hmm. And what different learners each of us are, what different perceivers we are equals what, you know, how differently we, we're going to have to learn information. And in your particular case, you come from a musical family, that's mm-hmm. putting it mildly. Hmm. The, the, the jump to the art based on this little game you're talking about, I mean, poetry, music, visual art is very much metaphorically based. It's a it's a beautiful process in which I can hear a piece of music and think of a color, or I can hear, see a color and think of the kind of music that would accompany it. That's me. But you're not only doing that, you're actually creating art, maybe yeah. based on this ab- ability. Definitely. And actually, in this is the, the sort of the game and the experience experiment that consensus my my art project came out of was the recognition that maybe because I'm seeing Princess Diana as a butterfly and my brother is seeing her as a peacock, perhaps my interpretation of a piece of music is going to be different than my brother's. And how do I actually identify that without actually exploring his metaphoric mm-hmm. reaction? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I created... It, in a sense, there's a, a, this individual streak that is kind of exciting about where we are now as opposed to 30, 40 years ago when people were just in the closet about this kind of stuff. And and Dr. Webb and others who pioneered this concept that people are really special, everyone's unique, uh, is really kind of uh, cool. I mean, it, and it it's dyslexia is not a disease or a, a syndrome. 
first of all, no one can tell if someone's dyslexic by looking at them, talking with them and all that. But is this a good stepping stone to accepting people with all kinds of, quote unquote, disabilities or yeah, there's a a book that I read not long ago, um, I think by Andrew Solomon called Far From the Tree, mm. which is a book about um, basically about uh, classification, identification. And you know how, uh, you know, if you're like your parents, then you haven't fallen far from the tree. They say you haven't fallen far from the tree. But if you happen to have be very different, if you happen to have been born with autism or with... Um, you know, dyslexia or, uh, you know, with dwarfism, then there's no way of identifying hor- uh, vertically. You're going to have to identify ho- uh, horizontally. horizontally. Thank you. Right. Um, and so um, I think that the idea is if we can, f- if we can designate who we are, if we, I, I don't think that, that putting people into a uh, diagnosis is necessarily a bad thing unless you're not giving them a, a feeling of unity, a feeling mm-hmm. of um, community that they can actually reflect and be reflected by. We're not here to discuss research and all that, but uh, in the in the investigation I've done in learning about this and really enveloping myself in this, uh, the the takeaway for me is that intelligence, IQ, call it what you will is not any way related to this issue. And unfortunately, it's always been, well, that person over there is obviously stupid because he or she can't read. Uh, Henry Winkler on CBS um, Sunday Morning recently mentioned the fact that the first book he read, he read at the age of 31. Wow. And this is a guy who was a superstar in his 20s yeah. and figured out a workaround. Now he's writing books for kids to uh, to accept themselves. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how, through your life, things have evolved even further yeah. in professional terms as a writer, as a composer. Mm. Um, you know, going from school essences to where you are today, how has it mm. directed you or been part of you? So my brother and I, uh, both dyslexic, kept on going to different schools around New York City. You know, every year there was a different school for us to sort of guinea pig and see if you know, that curriculum would actually fit into uh, a modality or was a modality mm-hmm. that we could comprehend. Um, so we sort of sampled all of these different techniques of teaching. Um, and at, at some point, I remember actually, I was going to school in New York City at a place called Rudolf Steiner, and it was definitely the, the best curriculum for my dyslexic mind. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, being taught a, a language and having a really hard time with it. And I remember feeling, and again, here's a metaphor, I remember feeling as though everybody was easily able to incorporate the information as though they were walking through what to me seemed like a brick wall. And I kept on sort of running into the brick wall and that wouldn't, you know, get me through. And then I had sort of like tried to dig a hole under the dirt wall, the brick wall, and that couldn't get me through. Um, But because I had the encouragement from my parents, I didn't have this sense of like, now it's time to give up. I had this, you can do it. I've done it. You know, go, go, go. You can do this. Until I found the courage to sort of skirt myself along this invisible brick wall until I could find an edge. And then finding the edge, I was able to, you know, run around the side of the wall while everybody else was going through it and find my way into 
uh, higher learning. And I went to Brown University. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, I wrote my my um, my essay, my my intro, and my uh, my application, application f- right. uh, on essences. And what I recognized in this, uh, you know, dilemma, and then the solution of finding my way around the wall, was that. There is no such thing as a wall without an edge in life. And my peers who had easily advanced through this scholastic wall um, didn't know that. And so I had this incredible advantage in knowing that challenges that um, would come my way throughout life were just walls that I was going to have to find an edge. It's very Interesting you say that, uh, that the people who were fast trackers, who uh, I I tend to agree with your first opening statement about all of us having certain bumps and bruises that make us who we are. But those people that are fast trackers, they're just looking at the goal at at the A plus and they'll they don't see any any way but directly to that A plus. You figured out ways because you had to around that wall a bit to make it there without bumping into it. It's, it's an interesting concept in terms of school and how we progress, but also in terms of career and, and life success. Yeah, I think that the key was having advocacy, you know, having advocates behind me, having identification with those people who were encouraging me, and then uh, just not giving up on myself. You know, uh, those uh, were the ingredients that really... Obviously, Sally, you had, and you've said it more than once, you had parents who cared and who were backing you up. You also have a child with your husband who is dyslexic, and you're probably doing the same thing, maybe even going above and beyond. What do you say to young people, particularly, who don't have that family, for whatever reason, backing? Um, they still shouldn't give up, right? Because there are people in the professional Absolutely world not. who can help. Give the, give a little advice yeah, to those I folks. mean, I, I I always, when I run into somebody who's dyslexic, I'm like, you're stoked. I always, you know, go up to them <laughs> and I'm like, you're so psyched that you have this. I'm like, don't, you know, don't let school get you down. Don't let education get in the way of your knowledge. You know, you're going to be just fine, but reading's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Um. But just know that you know you're you're brilliant. You've got an incredible mind, and you're going to see the world in a different way than anybody else's. So just keep on moving. Keep on so going. self-esteem it matters for everybody, obviously, but it's such a boost to the sense of inner peace and success to come. Self-esteem is critical here, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. In in you know, in, it doesn't even matter if you have a learning disability right. or not. You you know, confidence will get you everywhere. The the thing that my husband is always saying, you know, he has these shirts made up and his slogan is dyslexic before it was cool. <laughs> um, and, you know, what we're trying to do is change the message around because it's the message that's the problem. It's not the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And the message is, is that we're not going to succeed. And that's not true. I mean, if you look at the population, you know, and my husband has the statistics on his website, but, you know, something like. Fifty percent of you know all CEOs are dyslexic. You know, there's all of these crazy statistics about our capabilities to succeed and our intellect, and and about our you know amazing capacity to see the world. Hmm. So really, the only thing 
that is missing between those who are being incarcerated and, you know, being disenfranchised and, um, you know, not succeeding and those who are succeeding way beyond normal expectations is seems to be confidence, Mm -hmm. seems to be uh, identification with, um, you know, a a group of people who are all succeeding Mm -hmm. and recognizing the benefits of their learning disability. I want to talk with you about art and an organization called Consensus. I want to talk to you about that. But before we leave this one more question about where we are technological, technologically wise. And with your son particularly, are you noticing thanks to, or in spite of, thanks to the technology that enables us to have spoken word, you know, retort, all the kind of stuff that's coming out at a rapid pace. Is that making life that much easier than it might have been years ago? I think it is. I think all of the advancements with technology and this, you know, speech to text programs and the typing programs mm-hmm. and the all of the incredible things that that schools now make available including reading specialists and um extra, you know, extra time on tests and other things that benefit um the dyslexic learner. Um but really again, I think if I were to give it a percentage, I would say, you know, that's, you know, that's maybe like 5%. Really, it's the confidence mm. to, you know, to use that material, to use those technologies to actually advance, to use those, you know, to, to have the spirit of, you know, when, when my, my son talks about it, he always says, you know, I might not be great at this now, but just wait until I get, you know, out into the real world. He's got some of that Taylor, <laughs> he does. Yeah. Taylor oomph, he does. which is very important. You're an artist in many respects, a musician, a writer, composer, producer. You had a record label, the whole deal. Yeah. And obviously the confidence is showing through mm-hmm. With, mm-hmm. with all of this. But talk a little bit about the creative process in terms of your music, uh, which obviously is in the gene pool. Still, how the dyslexia, or let's call it the dyslexic advantage, has enabled you to produce what you've produced. And you're very proud of it, and you should be. Tell us about that. Sure. So Consensus is um, a a project that is sort of like a game of telephone, but with art. And it evolved from a fable about these blind men and an elephant. Mm -hmm. And the blind men, they come across this elephant, and they feel different parts of its body and determine that it's different. Each one determines it's something different. The one that feels the tail is sure that elephant is a rope. The one that feels the ear thinks it's a fan. The one that feels the leg thinks it's a pillar. And they each sort of battle for who's most accurate around, about the essence of this thing. And then this king comes and he says, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. You know, you guys have to stop fighting. You're each only feeling one tiny piece of something much greater that alone you don't have access to. You need to find a way of listening to each other and sharing your different experiences in order for the larger identity of this beast to occur to you. And when I heard that fable in college, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> we're each like one of these blind men. We're each like, uh, you know, blind. We, we're, you know, we, we don't have, we only have these five senses in order to understand the vastness of the universe of reality mm. and it's just not enough and we're each feeling only a tiny sliver of space and time so it occurred to me that i wanted to create something that would enable people to share their different experiences and listen to one another mm. and that became consensus so i 
created an elephant of my own by selecting a bunch of different photographs that represented one thing. And then I took each of those photos and I found different musicians and I gave each photo to a musician and said, what does this mean to you? There's no right or wrong answer. I just want to understand what it means to you in, in, in a song. And when they returned the song, I then took that and I gave it to a painter and I said, if this song were a painting, what would it be? I never showed them the original photo. And then I took their paintings and I gave them to perfumers and said, you know, what is the mm. essence of this painting? Um, and then the perfumes went to dancers, dances to poets, poems to sculptors. Sounds a little bit like a game you might have played early on. Yeah, yeah, right. So it came from essences. <laughs> yeah. And and when I had finished, 150 artists had participated. Mm -hmm. And I gave each of those strands, the song, the perfume, the um, dance, et cetera, to a set designer who I said, what is this as one thing? What, mm. what would you create in reaction? And they created these incredible spatial designs where we then showed the work, these sets, um, and when visitors come in, they, you know, they see the photograph that inspired the song, then, you know, they smell the perfume, they taste the tea, they touch the sculpture. This is truly an international project, too. Right. 23 which, different countries. Which, which is obviously aimed at bringing people together, and it really does. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the Terrazin Music Foundation, the Theresienstadt uh, concentration camp during World War II, where certain music was composed and... The young composers or the young players, ultimately many of them were slaughtered by the Nazis. But I was recently at an event where a composition was played, mm. written by uh, Gideon Stone, who was a composer who was killed by the Nazis. The, the only point I wanted to draw here and parallel here is the fact that art is the great unifier, if you will. We're all on an equal plane in terms of our ability, if we want to, if we tuned in, to to soak it in. We may not all like the same thing, but we all know there's a reaction to it. And I give you credit for, for sponsoring and launching this program so that we can, we can do this. <laughs> and I understand, uh, well, let me give the website, mm. consensus, C-O-N-S-E-N-S-E-S dot -E -S -E org. Consensus. I yeah. love that. What do they say? Uh, you, you get a bunch of guys on a sand lot from different parts of the world, and if they all know how to play baseball, sooner or later they'll all get along. They may <laughs> want to win, and but they're not going to they're not going to fight each other and kill each other. The right. same thing here. I think that's true, and I think you know I think that all of us are artists. I think that you know that we do this incredible creative thing with our brain every mm -hmm. second of every mm -hmm. day, where you know the raw materials of reality are constantly playing with our senses, you know, photons hit our eyes and smells, you know, chemicals, you know, attach themselves to receptors in our noses and our mouths. And we, you know, we touch things and it's really just, you know, electromagnetism. Uh, and, sure. you know, we have these very, very few paints to paint with, you know, and we take them and we, you know, our, our nervous systems pick them up like paintbrushes. And then we paint these incredible versions of life in our brain that never, ever get seen by anybody. I would imagine that uh, dyslexic or not, everyone dreams. It's uh, part of the human experience that just, again, opens up the possibilities for endless imagination, which we all are gifted with uh, at, at time. Let me ask you about our general societal approach here. More and more 
educators are being trained in LD and learning disabilities and so forth. My daughter's one example. More and more people are addressing this in the public school sector and so forth. But is that enough? Uh, what, what would you like to see if you could wave the magic wand here in the next five years or even less to approach this subject with, with caring? What would you like to see happen? I like to think that the recognition that people with learning differences need a different approach is really just the beginning of recognizing that every person is a different type of learner. And if you can figure out the best approach, if you can offer them the educational meal that mm -hmm. they that their system can digest and really access and utilize, that they will succeed. They will succeed in integrating that inter information. As it is now, I feel like there's just like a bunch of fast food education on our tables and we're like, okay, what of this is my body going to be able to use? The truly nutritional food group is the arts. And we all know that over the years, that's the one thing that gets cut before the sports and all that. I'm not going to get into a political argument here, but there's dynamite research that points to the impact of art music in elementary all the way up through high school and beyond. If it were me, I would say, let's not ever forget that for a lot of kids, a lot of people, art is the is the pathway. Hallelujah. I mean, I definitely think that, you know, and I've always said this, that, you know, if we were created by a creator, which I don't know if it is true or not, but if we, if we are created by a creator, then the only thing that we know if we're created in that creator's image is that we're creative. <laughs> and so Touché. to to get to the planet and to not figure out a way of expressing ourselves creatively is a travesty. Particularly in in a culture that is promoting and, and does stand for freedom. I mean, there are some places in the world, and you probably have touched base with people in certain countries mm -hmm. where it's more difficult to create art because of the political ramifications. Why would we not want to take every opportunity to do what we do it's uh, so important. and promote it with our it's kids? It's so important. You mentioned your husband many times. You mentioned he has a website. I think we should mention it right I now. I think we should. Go right ahead. All right. It's noticeability, N-O-T-I-C-E-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Dot. Dot org. Dot org. Noticeability.org. And needless to say, You've got consensus, C-O-N-S-E-N-S-E-S dot org. Let me just say this. I, I, I've been lucky enough to know actually two of your uncles. I know Livingston Taylor and I know Peter Simon. Mm. And Peter is one of my favorite people. He's down on the Cape. And he and I have been fast friends, long distance friends, because he was a long time listener of mine when I was doing radio. And uh, you do come from a, a, a very interesting and wonderful group of people. Absolutely. Who have raised you. So, uh, yeah, and, and, thank you. And, and finally, your son, how old is he? He's nine years old and in third grade. Okay, and so he's in the formative years, and obviously he's getting the kind of uh, acceptance and support from you and your husband. And uh, how's he doing? He's doing great. He really sees dyslexia as his huge superpower uh, that, uh, you know, he's, he's really excited about it. In fact, I remember when we were taking him to his neuropsych, he he was saying, you know, is there a possibility that I might not be dyslexic? 
Um, and we were like, well, yeah, there, there's a, you know, there's a good possibility. He was like, really? Like, <laughs> what happens then? I mean, can I still go to school? Can I still like, am I still going to succeed in life? You know, he really wanted to know what the ramifications of not being dyslexic were. And we reassured him that that would be okay too. Right. But that's a whole new way to look at things it's a whole in our way current to look at things. Yeah. living experience. And yeah. it's a very exciting, I'll use that word again, way. Sally, thank you for joining us on this podcast. It's my pleasure. And your words, but more than that, your actions really speak to what we've talked about. So thank you. I did want to say one other thing. Sure. So Noticeability, which is my husband's organization, is creating curricula for dyslexic. It's a strength-based curriculum for dyslexics. And it has four different platforms, all with the strengths in mind, the dyslexic strengths. So one program is for entrepreneurs, one is for artists, one is for um, uh, engineers, one is for architects. And the platform that we're building out now is the one for artists, and we're using consensus as the methodology. So consensus curriculum will be in noticeability for dyslexics mm-hmm. if um, if people are interested. I'm in sure they will be, and I'll, we'll pass along as many of these links as we can. The fact that things are happening and moving and shaping and creating, it's it's a whirlwind of fun. It is. Thank you so much Thank for joining us. Thank you so us. much for having me. It's been a wonderful experience. Thank you for listening to Dyslexics Wanted. Feel free to contact us here at our website, wicd.org. And there you'll learn more about how you can support the documentary film Decoders, which is currently in production. We welcome guest or topic suggestions for this podcast. Dyslexics Wanted is available on all major platforms, including Apple, and is a production of the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia. I'm Jordan Rich, wishing you a great day.